Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy, and cybersecurity. I'm Arj. I'm joined by Jordan. Hi, Jordan. How are you going? Good, Arj. I've had most of this week off, so I'm very good. I've been building home irrigation systems and hanging out in the sun and having a great time. I um, I can connect with the, the second and third thing you said. The first one's not something I normally get up to on my holidays, <laughs> building irrigation systems. I mean, sure, why not? Yeah, I, ha- I have a strange idea of fun, maybe. <laughs> How's it been going? And more importantly, have you used any AI on automation to help get you over the hill? Because that's going to be very topical for us today. No AI, but definitely automation. I'm Now I'm intrigued. I wonder if there's like some kind of AI home gardening product. I'll I'll research. I'll get back to you next week. I'm sure there is. Of course there is. You know, when when you've got a hammer, uh, everything looks like a nail. And if you've got AI, I'm sure you could be able to find a way to use it. Um, If there is a problem that humans face, there is a magical AI solution for that problem that somebody is selling, I'm sure. Yeah, Yeah. which is exactly what we're talking about today. Um, We're going to be talking about those magical powers of AI and really how we do talk about AI in that way and what that means for the way we use it in various applications and then how it shapes policy making. Um, the trigger for our conversation about that is this news out of South Australia over the week. There were the results of a pilot that was done in the aged care sector where they used AI-based surveillance technology to detect falls and abuse. And so the way it was intended to work was there were sort of cameras and microphones set up in different parts of these aged care facilities in common areas and in bedrooms. And the system was programmed to detect specific movements or sounds. So, you know, falls, um, calls for help, screams, uh, and then a text message would get fired off to the monitoring center when something like that happened. Um, but now there's been a review of this 12-month pilot and it's actually found that the system generated more than 12,000 false alerts, which is a staggering number of false alerts. But if you think about what that meant and how that actually impacted things, that volume of alerts meant that often staff were taken away from their duties caring for patients to attend to these alerts, which proved to be false. And as you would expect, staff also became a little bit desensitized to the alerts because there were so many of them and many of them proved to be false. So there was at least one occasion the review found that there was no response to an actual real fall because of the desensitization. Um, The South Australian Health Minister described this as a case of, you know, the boy who cried wolf. Thoughts on that one? Total failure, right? Total failure of a trial, which, you know, I mean, great, do the trial, find out, discover that the tech is just totally not there. So, you know, you'd think you'd think that that would mean that everybody just agrees that the technology is not there and let's move on. But no, in the ABC coverage, they have quotes from the SA Health Minister, the SA Opposition Ageing Spokeswoman, and a spokeswoman from the Federal Department of Health and Aged Care, who all speak positively about future adoption of this technology. You know, it's this idea that we just need to iron out the kinks. So, you know, maybe the right lesson has not been learnt there, which for me is the central issue with this whole story, right, and why we wanted to talk about it, because it's such a good example of this kind of AI solutionism, AI magic that gets sold and gets bought consistently, but doesn't actually solve the problems that it's purporting to solve, you know, and there's such an appeal 
for policy makers, for people who are running services. Aged care is such a deep problem. You know, there are so many things wrong with our aged care sector and, you know, from years of neglect and funding and all sorts of challenges. When you get presented with a magical product, don't worry about how it works, but it'll solve your aged care resourcing problems, you know, decrease staff number requirements by 50% or whatever they're promising. It's so appealing to just grab at that, right? There is this really strong theme in this kind of AI space of just vendors selling magic and over and over again, decision makers falling for it. And I think this is a good example of that. Yeah, totally. It starts at a broader sort of problem of just generally technology, doesn't it? As in that sort of tech solutionism, that utopian view of technology as the answer. But yeah, it is much more pronounced in this AI space. And a lot of it, I think, like you say, has to do with that sort of magic, that appeal of magic and that black box. Like we, we use this term like artificial intelligence and often it's not actually clear what we're talking about. What is the thing that's doing it? So, so really like the attitude towards it is just, it's magic. It's this, it's an answer. We've seen that kind of automated or AI type answer fail in so many different contexts recently. You know, RoboDebt's the famous other example where, you know, this sort of highly autonomous approach to solving a problem has just kind of run off the rails. And we were recently having some conversations as an organization at our offsite about AI and the ethics of AI. And we were very fortunate and honored to have Ed Santo, the former human rights commissioner and now a professor at UTS, come and talk to us. And it was a, quite a striking statistic that he gave us, which was that some 85% of AI projects fail. And so it really kind of cuts through that illusion and that you know the magic it's just it's quite staggering that that is the extent at which these projects kind of fall away and yet there is still so much hype and so much willingness to undertake the next one even in this story here right you've got a trial that like failed dramatically and then all of the decision makers involved in the trial are like yeah we want to try again yeah and, and parallel to that was the job summit that's underway at the moment and the Tesla chairwoman, Robin Denham, made the comment that, you know, I'm a tech optimist and I believe most of our problems as a society can be cured by technology. And it's, again, it's this kind of idea that you don't even need to know what the problem is. You don't even need to know what its complexity is. Technology just will be the answer is the sort of mentality. here. And it's an article of faith, right? That's such a statement of faith. I, I don't know what the problem is. I don't know what the technical solution is, but I trust that there is one. That use of AI as a magical item of faith, right? And there's a couple pieces that we wanted to talk about in reference to that. The first is Ellen Broad, who is an associate professor with ANU's School of Cybernetics. She wrote a piece that was published in Innovation Oz about the use of AI as an umbrella term and how it kind of gets in the way of regulating and talking about the actual systems. She was saying that she wants us to move away from AI as a term that binds together a whole bunch of different things, right? So so there's, you know, AI in facial recognition, there's AI in digital assistance, there's AI in, you know, home irrigation systems, and they're all dramatically different applications of this thing. And so it doesn't make sense, as she argues, to talk about them even as the one thing, right? We need 
a different conversation for each technology and context. Yeah, exactly. Like there's the different context that we use it. And then there's even just the different tools that it is represented by AI. You know, it's everything from sort of chatbots to facial recognition to digital assistance to, you know, these algorithms that personalize and recommend. And, you know, the idea that all of that is AI is, well, for one, it's confusing because all of those things are very different. But secondly, it perpetuates the magic. It's sort of you just get AI and it will solve a problem. So it's this idea of rejecting it as a catch-all term and then thinking more about the specifics around how it's being used, the systems it's being used within and what are the contexts really. And I really like that idea. She had this parallel around kind of electricity, which is that electricity is this underpinning infrastructure, but we use it in so many different ways. It's everything from powering a lamp through to much more complex applications. And we wouldn't talk about electricity in a singular way, like add electricity to that and it will be fixed. It would be like, what are you trying to do? What are the systems involved? What are the relationships in the context? And is that right? And is that actually going to solve the problem? And maybe you don't need to electrify it might be the answer. I think it's a very interesting way to say, well, AI is actually counterproductive to talk about as a single thing. I particularly liked that analogy because in the early days of electricity, you know, 250 years ago or so, people did talk about electricity in much the same way that we are talking about and using AI now, right? Like electricity was... It was a cure for blindness, it was a cure for cancer, it was a cure for personality disorders, you know, just add electricity, this weird new wonderful magic and it'll fix stuff, right? And over time, it became clear that most of those applications were absurd and there was no evidentiary connection between the electricity and curing blindness or whatever. But also, you know, some of them were, you know, that electricity is used in some very specific treatment contexts where we've discovered that it's actually useful and actually practical. And I feel like that's where we are with AI now, right? Like, it's this new thing, it's got great promise, but we haven't quite worked out exactly where it's most effective and where it causes harm. And we haven't also, and this is one of Ellen Broad's points, we haven't developed the kind of context-specific expertise that we need to really understand it. So like in the last few years, AI research has been much more focused, for example, on the training data sets that we use and whether they are representative, whether they're biased and building ways of assessing and auditing those training data sets to understand the outputs of the AI on the other end. You know, there's a million like little things like that, these kind of safety standards and expertise and infrastructure around the use of AI that we're probably going to spend the next 50 years building, just like we spent 250 years building safety standards and electricity grids that don't catch fire and all the rest of it. Building that kind of safety infrastructure around AI is something that we need to do to make it safe and practical. Which we potentially don't focus on enough if we just think about it as you know the sort of just add water magic solution and yeah so often when we see these ai solutions break down when they haven't led to the outcomes that we want to like the aged care example we talked about 
it, it's so often so much because it was implemented for a particular scenario, but then there are these edge cases for, for which it is catastrophic and the, the outcomes are horrendous. And it's like, well, we can't allow that to happen, even if we more efficiently get outcomes for the other 80%. It's just a, such a terrible thing. So it's like, did it end up being a proportional thing for the problem? And so, so much of the challenge ends up being about diving into the context and looking at how the AI interacts with the other systems, like the human systems that are working within it. And I mean, I think that's where the cybernetics view of Ellen Broad also comes out is that there are these systems and how are they talking to each other? It's not just about dropping in a magical black box. I just, I really like that analogy still. I like to imagine us in the future, you know, a couple generations down the line, looking back at us today deploying AI in the same way that we look back at Victorian England trying to bring people back to life with electricity is like such an obviously absurd exercise. I like to imagine future generations looking at us in the same way, like what morons that, you know, they didn't consider the context, they didn't consider the systems and interactions, they didn't understand that this is obviously not a sensible technology to deploy in that way. You know, I, I think that's optimistic. Yeah, I think we might have to hope pretty hard on that one. But um, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what words they use to talk about the technology because the other interesting piece that we are wanting to talk about was there's a US-based center on privacy and technology who've even taken it a step further. And they're saying not only is this conversation about AI needing to be much more cognizant of the context that where we were talking using technology, but we shouldn't use the word at all. So they've decided, they announced in March that they're just going to stop using the terms artificial intelligence, AI, and machine learning because essentially they've turned into a bit of a mask for what the actual practices are and what the technologies are because, exactly as we're saying, they've generated such momentum and marketing buzz that in many cases it's enough just to say i am doing ai and nobody asks any further questions everyone's kind of wowed by it and they're saying well actually no if we take the word out of the vocabulary we're then forced to contend with what we're actually doing we're forced to describe using other words how we are impacting people what data we're using what the actual state of this technology is and to actually go beyond the sort of marketing buzz. Can I do a couple of quotes because I love the language. Emily Tucker, who's the executive director of the Center for Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law, who wrote this piece we're talking about, writes brilliantly. And she says, whatever the merit of the scientific aspirations originally encompassed by the term artificial intelligence, it's a phrase that now functions in the vernacular primarily to obfuscate, alienate, and glamorize. It's an idea that's been formed in large part through marketing campaigns and market control of tech companies selling products to their ends. I love that. And I also love the examples that they gave of how they will actually do this. So, for example, instead of saying facial recognition using artificial intelligence, they say that we might say something like, Tech companies are using massive data sets to train algorithms to match images of human faces, which kind of tells you a lot more about what it is. You know, in the same way, instead of saying employers are using AI to analyze workers' emotions, 
what we should be saying is employers are using software advertised as having the ability to label workers' emotions. Based on images of them from photographs and video, we don't know how the labeling works because the companies that sell the products claim that that information is a trade secret. So you really start to get to what we're dealing with here, you know, like to the extent that an AI is magic, but it's actually like using large amounts of acquired data about us, well, then we have to say that. So we now then are alert to the privacy implications to the extent that it might be a bit snake oily. Well, we're going to not just say it's an AI. We're going to say that it's, you know, proprietary software that has these claims that have never been verified. So it really starts to cut through the black box. It's the advantage of being specific about the technology we're talking about and actually how it works and what we do and don't understand about that technology, right? When you talk about it as just AI, though that's a very appealing shorthand and it's one that we're constantly guilty of using as well, you obfuscate those specifics. She cites quite an interesting study from an organization called Frameworks, which is a not-profit think tank that's focused on helping organizations communicate about social issues in ways that the public will like support and understand. And they did a study about misconceptions about AI, which found, as Emily Tucker describes, they fall into kind of roughly two categories, which are people don't know what it is, what AI is, but despite that, they assume that AI is smarter than them. And these specific descriptions of well, there's a data set and there's an algorithm that matches two similar pictures, or there's a tech startup over there that promises that this does a thing, but actually we've got no evidence that it does. And it was written by three engineers in Silicon Valley, and we don't know what kind of scientific backing it has, if any. If you describe it like that, it's obvious that maybe we should question this. If you describe it as magical AI, you get this assumption that, well, it's this machine that magically exists and and I can trust to solve this problem. So yeah, I love all of these and I think we should endeavor. A lot of the suggested better approaches are a lot more verbose and it's a difficult discipline, but I think it's a really useful one to try to, you know, every time we say AI, can we pull it back to say, well, what exactly are we describing here? You're right, like that it becomes more verbose, but gives you a sense of how much the terms AI are masking, you know, when you try to break it down and you have to suddenly use like a dozen more words to talk about what you're actually doing, then it shows you how problematic it is just to say I'm using AI, particularly when, as you said just now from those findings from frameworks that most people actually don't even know what that is. And picking up Ellen Broad's point as well, it's 20 different things that AI is used. You know, it's not the same 10 extra words to replace AI sentence to sentence, right? It can be something like totally different, can be a totally different context, can be a totally different technology. It can be a totally different level of confidence that we should have in it. Just that label, it confuses and obscures the complexity. And it also buys into these, you know, this trust in technology and this, like, I think very carefully constructed perception carefully constructed through marketing campaigns this idea that you don't have to worry the technology will solve it it's it's magic and i think there's some interesting implications for policymakers in this space as they sort of try to think about how to how to wrap their hands around ai i mean 
you know, like in Europe, in the EU, where they have an AI act and, you know, reading some of the sort of conversations around that when it was in draft, so much of it was sort of bogged down in discussion around the definition of AI that goes into the act, which speaks to the problems we're talking about, which is that they were trying to get a single set of words to capture all of these different tools and technologies and contexts. And it's really challenging but also a problematic thing to do because if you're trying to regulate AI through an act and you don't get something that's all-encompassing enough, then you potentially leave a bunch of technologies unregulated. And so, you know, the, that approach of like, let's regulate AI because it's a singular neat concept sort of breaks down. Just like the label AI is an appealing and convenient one to use, it's really appealing to think about regulation in this area as the goal is like a couple simple rules. You know, we've got to boil it down. We've got to simplify it. But and this is an argument Alan Broad makes, given the diversity of technologies that we're talking about, that's not an achievable goal. You know, in fact, as our regulation of this area matures, it's going to split up just like it did with electricity, right? You don't have the Electricity Act that regulates all uses of electricity. You have different detailed expert and specific standards in all of the different contexts, right? The requirements for wiring up a house are really different from the requirements for wiring up a hospital or like a naval vessel or a train line. You know, the applications are totally different. The standards and requirements are totally different in the different contexts. And that's the level of maturity that in 50 to 100 years, maybe, we're going to get to with a thing like AI as well. The last thing I wanted to note as well, just tying that Emily Tucker piece about not calling it AI back to the South Australian aged care story, is how if you read that story, it just talks about using AI to detect falls, to hear for screams, to detect motion. It very much does what Emily Tucker is complaining about. There's no mention of the name of the company. There's no description of how the technology works. There's no discussion of whether there's evidence. You know, it says it's an Australian first, but there's no, like, has it been applied elsewhere? What is the evidence for this being an effective intervention? And, like, granted, it is just a trial, and so maybe there wasn't a lot of evidence, and this is developing the evidence. But, yeah, that story is a really good example of how media constantly frames AI as, like, almost a, a personality in itself, right? It gives the AI itself agency and no need to discuss who the particular engineers are that are selling, building and selling the thing. In, in many ways, it's a very sort of... Um like it's a very reassuring conversation i find like i think ai has gotten to a point where it almost feels like it's embarrassing to ask what do you mean you know like it's just it's used so pervasively it's the answer to so many problems you know ostensibly so you second get most people probably second guess like you said from that framework so second guess the ability to, to ask those questions like oh you're using ai to detect force what, what, what do you mean like how does it work who's doing it what's the technology like it seems like you almost come across as backwards to want to ask those questions so i like the idea that this thinking from Emily Tucker from the Center for Privacy and Technology and the sorts of things Ellen Broad is putting that back on the table to say, actually, let's get beyond it. You know, you're allowed to ask the questions. In fact, you should ask the questions because that'll draw us to, are we using it in the right way? Should it even be the solution? I would also ask who benefits from not asking those questions, right? The people selling the stuff. 
And what's the result of not asking those questions? 85% of these projects fail. You know, 15% succeed, which is just like a remarkable hit rate. It's, it's remarkable that anybody still invests in any of this with that level of failure. The discussion we wanted to have today, I guess, was about looking past the magic, right? We've got the example in the essay, Aged Care Case, those pieces from Ellen Broad and Emily Tucker. For me, the core takeaway there is like language matters, specifics matter. We are in this problematic position with AI at the moment because we are buying into the marketing material. We're using those broad terms without interrogating them. And that lets us just accept that these are magical solutions. And and I think that, so that use of language is the thing to really challenge. And my takeaway is that when we're talking about it and when we're talking with clients and stuff about AI solutions is to really try to follow those rules that Emily Tucker put at the end of her article. Being specific, identifying obstacles to our own understanding, naming the corporations responsible and attributing agency to human actors, the people who actually build the things, not to the technology itself. So, you know, they're my four takeaways, right? I will try to use them every week with you. I'm happy to hold you to account on that. I think I would say the same. The only other thing I would add is that as much as it seems like critical take of AI and technology, I think at the heart of what we're also talking about is like, how do you get that 85% failure rate to fall away and have much more successful implementations of technology. Because what we're seeing clearly is that for all the utopia and optimism around it and all of the heavy push from big tech and whatever, these solutions still fail in large numbers because they're not properly anticipating the context that they're working in. They're not really understanding the complexities of the problems. And the way that we do that is to talk about them in more granular terms, what they are, how they're built, how they're designed, who's doing it. Uh, And that's all we're saying. Let's have those conversations much more clearly so that the technology applications are more successful over time. That's it, right? Like, how do we get past the stage where we're trying to shock cadavers back to life we're trying to cure blindness with electricity how do we get past that stage to a more sophisticated and specific understanding of what this thing can do well i feel like i've on your day off i've kept you away from your irrigation system for too long to talk about ai yep i'll go i'll get back to my pipes and my ai in the garden yeah you know i'm wishing you a a greater than 85 percent chance of success on that one (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah i'm not sure about that we'll see i'll let you know on monday nice one have a good one thanks jordan see you next week